Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Now, don't be afraid, Bucky. The swaying rope bridge is the only way across that 400-meter chasm. It doesn't look safe, Captain Wolf. Looks can be deceiving, Bucky. This bridge is rewoven every year by the good women of the nearby village, Potazibo. They're sturdy souls, and I've taken three of them as wives. If you say so, Captain Wolf. All right, now steady yourself, Bucky, and cast your gaze around. From this bridge, you can see all manner of fauna. Look, there's a red-crested kittiwake, one of only nine left in the world. What are those creatures down in the gorge? Oh, those are aquatic apes, our distant ancestors. Science will tell you they don't exist, but as adventurers, we know better, right? Now let's head to the other side, Bucky. I can't say I'm sorry to be off that bridge, Captain Wolf, but... Oh my god, what are those things? Oh, those are yellow-striped pygmy land whales. These beautiful sea mammals have evolved to live on land in this misty environment. Look, that one knows me from my previous visits. Do we have any of those Norwegian krill bars? You ate the last one on Tuesday. Oh, well, I'll just... Don't step there. There's a Kleinhofer main sloth hanging right above you. One swipe of its poison claw could kill you. Maybe it's time to turn back, Captain. We never turn back, Bucky. But it is time to say goodbye to our radio audience. On behalf of my sidekick, Bucky, and the makers of Dr. Zote's Intolerant Soap Flakes, this is Captain Agamemnon Wolf saying, Never flinch, always fight on. on. The The greatest greatest treasure lies ahead. Next week, Bucky and I test our courage against the Outer Zealand Hellmouth. Until then, goodbye. Okay, that's a wrap. I wish we could go to some of these places. Are you crazy? And get skin mites? Do you know how many diseases and poisonous insects there are out there? But still, I mean, we've never been anywhere. Look, I know a woman who went to Boston and choked to death on a piece of fruitcake. Believe me, we're better off right where we are. Oh, look, there's a Denny's right across the street. I think they just updated their menu. If you say so. I do say so. But if you want to listen to some reckless nuts who actually go places, listen to this radio show. And now, the man who discovered the lost crystal skull of Larry King, Colin McEnroe. Yes, unfortunately, the lost crystal skull of Larry King actually is Larry King. So, I mean, it was a discovery, and then, but not one I could really like take with me, for example. Um, all right, yes, we are going to talk about Atlas Obscura. Atlas Obscura is just like my new favorite thing. Not only am I not ever going anywhere without checking into Atlas Obscura first to see what I would otherwise be missing... But I would quit my job like now hosting my own wonderful show with beautiful, intelligent people that I enjoy so much and go to work for Atlas Obscura. It is just my dream thing. And I want to say that three months ago, I stood on the Pont Valentre in Cahors, France, completely unaware of the fact that this bridge has this legend attached to it that the people who were building it, talk about cost overruns, construction overruns, they, they were having so much trouble building it. There, there's a legend that they made a pact with the devil 
and that then they outwitted the devil by they gave the devil I don't know like this uh, bucket with a hole in it or something so the bridge never really got finished and then the devil got mad and he started taking little pieces of the bridge away and they'd have to put the piece of bridge back every night and I knew none of this because I hadn't checked in with Atlas Obscura. That was really stupid. That will never happen again. So uh, we are going to talk exclusively today to people who work for or run Atlas Obscura. Uh, we've got David Platts. He's the CEO of Atlas Obscura. He's been on this show before in other capacities. Uh, Dylan Thuris is a co-founder of Atlas Obscura. Um, Rehan Harmansi is the editor-in-chief of Atlas Obscura. You're sensing a pattern here. And uh, Sarah Lasko is a staff writer at Atlas Obscura. So, David, I'm going to start with you. Um, um, this is uh, this. Well, uh, describe the publication. I mean, just give us a sense of what your raison d'etre is. That was such a great intro, Colin. <laughs> I want to. I want that intro all the time. I want that to follow to to. If I were in the WWE, I'd want that to introduce me. Um, the Atlas Obscura's purpose in the world is to let people discover, help people discover the world's most, most amazing, curious, wondrous places. To be, to be the guide to amazement and wonder and what National Geographic was for the 20th century, we are going to be for the 21st, which is the sort of defining place for wonder, discovery, and exploration. And our premise is that exploration doesn't just belong to Richard Branson. It doesn't just belong to people who are kitted out with a million dollars worth of equipment. Exploration belongs to all of us and that every single one of us, wherever we are in the world, there's something amazing, something curious, something wonderful for us to discover around the corner from us. And we're going to help you do it. And we help you do it by, first of all, with this incredible um, atlas, literally thousands of places that users have contributed, uploaded photos, written descriptions. So it's a user-generated atlas of thousands of amazing places around the world. It's original articles and videos about incredible places. Um so we had a great article that Rehan will tell you about in a minute, probably about this this Scottish duke and a an amazing landscape architect teamed up to take the grounds of this ducal castle and build a garden representation of the multiverse, which is a physicist's idea of what parallel multiple universe look at look like. And you read an article and then you see this place which is otherworldly in every sense. So we are writing about places like that and about people doing incredible feats like that. And then we do real world events. So we take people to interesting places, behind the scenes at surprising places, uh, give them uh, give them real adventures. So our goal is to create a community and a world of adventurers. And also, I'm offering you that job. So, Colin, you have now quit and you're working for us. Well, we have to discuss salary, but yes. Um, but I'm very reasonable. I actually, I, I work very for very reasonable prices. So, um, so uh, and Rehan, I, uh, I know you're in a different studio. Could you hear what David uh, said? I did. Well, okay. parts of it. Parts of it. I I'm sure you that. don't. I'm sure you don't eat like a wild animal. I can't even believe he said something <laughs> like that about you. No, I wanted you. To, I think it's better to use some examples here. So, I mean, David sort of set you up a little bit for this. Um, and we should say that one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this show was I started noticing on Atlas Obscura things from here in Connecticut. Things that are one thing that's four blocks if even that, from where I live, but but which I wouldn't even have thought about in, in these terms, but it actually was a, a sort of great article. Maybe we'll mention that later. But um, since uh, David set you up for the, uh, tell us a little bit more about this, the, the Scottish multiverse place. This really seems like a, a rich man's folly writ cosmically large. Yeah, I mean, it is, is a 
is a crazy story. Um, it, it's the work of a man named Charles Jenks, um, who had one career as an academic and critic. He was one of the first people to popularize the term postmodernism. Um, and then he's had this spectacular second career as a landscape architect um, on the heels of his sort of tragically his wife's passing. She was also um, someone who made gardens. Um, and he somehow convinced uh, a Scottish duke to turn part of his giant estate in Scotland over to his, Jenks's conceptualization of a multiverse. Um, so it's like this huge piece of land that is filled with like swirling hills that were, you know, artificially constructed and um, filled with like cosmological ideas. Um, and our reporter actually went to Scotland and accompanied a group of scientists, um, physicists and, and people who had worked in this field um, who were there to see, you know, for the first time, a physical embodiment of this thing that they had had debated and conceptualized and um, opined about. Um, so it's a really special story. And yeah, I mean, it feels Dylan Thuris reading so many of these things. And you're the co-founder of Atlas Obscura. I feel like what the world really is is a Wes Anderson movie, and we just didn't know it. You know <laughs> that we're that the Grand Budapest Hotel and this Moonrise Kingdom stuff and all this kind of twee crazy stuff. I mean, just the story she just told, and and I think I remember from the article too that the guy plans to work on it till he's till his death, basically, because you can never finish the multiverse. Obviously, how are you going to ever finish it? It just feels like life is more goofy and twee and cinematic than most of us realize. That's, that's yeah, a statement that's rather a... than a question, but respond to it anyway. <laughs> I, I would agree with that statement. I, I think one of our fundamental tenets is that the the world is weird and the weirdness is, is all around you. And I'm really excited. I can't wait to hear about the thing that was four blocks from your house. I'm so curious. Um, but, you know, that, that some of these things are, are really far flung. They're, you know, halfway around the world. And some of this incredible deep weirdness is a few blocks from you. And, and I'm so excited when people – one of my favorite comments we get is when people say, I've lived here for 20 years and I had no idea this was, like, right next door to me. That feels like it's the, it's the perfect example of us achieving what we're trying to, to do. Well, I, I think some of it is just how we see, too. I, I, I had – I was brought up short. In 2013, I was working on a magazine article about um, – Tandem bikers, this, like, this, there's this whole world of people who ride high, really expensive, high-performance tandem bicycles. And I, we rode from Paris to Amsterdam uh, on these tandem bikes. But what was interesting was I had a photographer on the back of my bike. He was the second person on my bike. And just going places with him and watching how he saw things, I realized that most of us walk around, Dylan, kind of blindly. Like, he just, you know, we were in Paris together for three or four days, and the things that he saw in Paris on streets that I've walked down many times just made me realize that, that just seeing and knowing and noticing, taking your nose out of your stupid Rick Steves book, you know, and, <laughs> and seeing what's there is, is half the battle. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I like I like Rick Steves. I think I think he's okay. Uh, but but no, I completely agree. There's a, it's it's about sort of trying to see the world with with new eyes. And and I, you know, some of the my personal favorite wonders in the Atlas are things that don't seem at first like wonders at all. Um, there are these spaces of banana control uh, places uh, in in cities. You know, there's a huge one in the Bronx um, that are giant 
banana ripening facilities. Like you, you don't really <laughs> consider this when you go to the grocery store, but how do all the bananas get there and how are they all perfectly ripe at the same time? And it's because they live in this incredible warehouse where they sort of go into different chambers depending on their level of greenness and are exposed to this gas and given this bizarre uh, kind of treatment to uh, bring them ripe to you. Uh, and, and that sort of you'd walk by that warehouse a thousand times. But as you start to learn more about uh, bananas, it becomes a world onto itself. And I really, I really enjoy that. Um, actually, you have a, a great point, Dylan. One of the things that Rick Steves always tells you in his books is where the banana ripening warehouses are <laughs> in the cities that you're visiting, because he just he will not he won't he won't brook the idea of you uh, possibly missing out on these things. So um, I know that um, well. First of all, the, the place that I live very nearby is is this chick, the Chick Austin House on Scarborough Street in Hartford, which is this kind of facade house. It, it's long. It's incredibly long and imposing looking, but then sort of not really very wide at all. Um, but and I just really never thought of it as kind of an attraction or a curiosity, and that's an indication of my blindness. But, David, I know one thing that uh, Atlas Obscura has been very interested in. Well, first of all, I just want to say that one of the things that's frustrating about Atlas Obscura is you think you know about something really cool, and then you look it up on Atlas Obscura. I thought I looked up Arcosanti in um, in Arizona because I, I to me that's a great example of the kind of place you guys write about, and I thought, oh, maybe I could write a little something. There's three articles about Arcosanti, which is this stalled utopian experiment in the desert north of Phoenix. But um, I know you guys are very interested in another in another quasi well and very quasi-utopian thing in Connecticut, and that is Coltsville. Uh, so I know uh, perhaps both you and Rehan can say a, a little bit about Coltsville and what it means to Atlas Obscura. Rehan, do you want to tell about Coltsville? Coltsville um, is a story done um, by one of our um, star uh, Atlas place contributors and, and now writers, Luke Spencer, um, this guy who's just he goes out and exploring. It's amazing. And he happened to see this place, Coltsville, and he noticed there's a there's a dome um, in in Connecticut, and it looked kind of like the Kremlin to him. And so he was like, "What is this?" Um, so he he went in and talked to people, and it it turns out Coltsville is a, a company town built um, by the founder of um, Colt Rifles. Um, and this is at a moment when like the business was booming, and it was all built in Connecticut, and so it's this kind of like you know, like a, a place where um, it was like a utopic factory town. It's kind of oddly beautiful and now mostly abandoned. Yeah, and I don't know whether I would I, – I might dispute the utopia tag – uh, the the Atlas Obscura has these great has a great tagging feature and it is sort of uh, I mean I think Colt was mainly kind of a control freak um, and it was like really convenient. To, to oh, have. that's what utopia utopias are. Is control yeah. freakness. I mean, I think that is like. I mean, yeah. David, that is a good point. That behind every utopia is a control freak, right? Yes, and I we I think one of the things that we are great at finding that because we have these explorers who are out, out in the world like Luke or writers like Sarah, we're great at finding places and people who who maybe have been forgotten, but who at the time that they were that they were going were, were people who really made a huge difference in the world and had powerful ideas and built the, the physical embodiments of their ideas and then and then uh, history history passes them by and we're not left with anything. One of my favorite things that we did, uh, we have this feature which is a, called Places You Can No Longer Go. Mm -hmm. 
which is a cartoon account of some wonderful place which has been been uh, disappeared by history. And there was one last week about the bicycle monorail. And in the late 19th century, there was this attempt before bikes before bikes were really safe. And before roads were safe for bicycles, there was a, how can bikes travel safely? We need a sort of flat, uh, controlled space. And so in these New Jersey towns, they built a monorail where you could get on your bike and bike from one town to another by monorail through farmer's fields. And it was thought to be, it was exhibited at the World's Fair. It was going to be the next thing. And of course, the bike monorail um, was obsolete. But you love this idea that, oh, wait, wait, it's it's not just, it's just not just uh, subway monorails that don't work. Bike monorails don't work either. Um, so, Sarah Alaska, we're getting into your wheelhouse here. I know you can't hear David right now. and He just maligned you horribly, of course. But, um, uh, but no, this whole issue of things that are lost and found. Maybe you want to give us kind of a – he just talked about the bike monorail, but you want to give us a, a favorite um, lost or found, maybe one or two of them. Oh, yeah, and actually we can hear David now, so okay. be careful. Um, don't malign us. Uh, Yeah, I mean, every day um, we look for something newly found in the world that's sort of wonderful or fascinating, um, and they're always great. I mean, one we had this week was about a GoPro camera that someone sent up into the atmosphere to the very, very edge of space. It looked down on Earth, it saw the Grand Canyon, and then it fell, like tumbled back down to Earth, and they couldn't find it for two years. And lo and behold, like not that long ago, someone came across this contraption with the camera and um, a phone attached to it, took the phone to the AT&T store, and it was reunited with its owners who got to see this adventure that their camera had been on. Um, You know, and we've also seen things like a guy driving or biking through a park in Australia who came across this like really creepy gathering of kangaroos that were just like standing there looking at him. And then as he biked through, they sort of hopped away and he was just like, what is going on? And I think it's like these little things that happen every day. Sometimes they're like great scientific discoveries, but sometimes they're just like little things that people are having their own little adventures with in the world that it's fun to discover and see like, what is it that people are seeing as they're just going about their lives? That's a little bit, has a little bit of wonder or amazement to it. I, ha- I have a lost um, that might be interesting, and that is uh, Nathan Hale, who's a, you know this famous spy, uh, went to Yale, his statues of him all over the place. He's the guy who said, I regret that I have but one life to give to my country. Um, his body has never been found. Nobody knows. I mean, we know where Nathan Hale was hanged by the British, and that was in New York, not too far from where you are. It's, I think, around uh, 66th and Park. Uh, but nobody knows where the body of Nathan Hale is. Um, and, and, and he's this sort of gigantic. I mean, I know all kinds of other things about Nathan Hale that might be interesting on, in an Alice Obscura way. Are there way. any clues? No. I mean, other just get get a jackhammer and a, a work permit from Mayor de Blasio and just, you know, just start hitting the sidewalks around there. I mean, he's under there somewhere, probably, uh, unless mm-hmm. unless his body was spirited away somewhere. Uh, so yeah, we'll have to look into that. Yes. We accept this mission. Yes, definitely. <laughs> things that are, things that are yeah, things that are. <laughs> We're gonna, yeah, go ahead. I, actually, Colin, that's your first assignment as our new employee. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. Do I have to find Nathan Hale, or do I just have yes. to document how yes. lo- lost he is? Then we'll negotiate salary All after right. you found Nathan Hale. <laughs> so I also want to say that we have a lot of kinship with you on this show. Uh, we've done two different shows. I'm pretty sure in our six years that involved astronaut poop. Uh, and uh, Rehan, uh, you guys recently t- uh, dealt with the the subject of astronaut poop, right? Like what happens when it goes out into the out into space? 
Yeah. Sarah, did you do that story? Uh, no, I think it was Eric, but I definitely was chatting about astronaut poop on our chat channel. Yeah, we have actually done a lot about astronauts in general. I, my favorite recent story was um, uh, uh, pre-launch rituals, um, and it turns out that Russian cosmonauts have a really special one. Um that involves relieving themselves in back of a bus. I somehow or other knew it involved relieving yourself somehow. So they, <laughs> so they go to the bathroom in the back of a bus? How is that, um, a, how is that think, a ritual and not a personal defect? I don't think it's in the bus. I think they exit the bus. Oh, okay. Um, but it's right next to the bus. Yeah. Um, it, American astronauts, a, they're – sorry, go ahead. They pee on a tire, right? There's a particular tire. And yeah, isn't it the, although – And and isn't it a problem for the women cosmonauts because (laughs) there's not the same... Yeah, they they are allowed to do something else, which involves, I think, like peeing into a cup and throwing it on the tire. (laughs) This seems like such a déclassé ritual somehow. Just peeing on a tire just feels like not momentous enough. You're about to go into space. Yeah, Americans weren't much better, though. I think their rituals were really about food. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there was some try to eat cake, I believe. Um, but the food rituals are harder. People are very nervous, and they don't want to eat. Right, because it's going to turn into space poop. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And, and, then, yeah. and then, and then, and according to Atlas Obscura, then it will look like a shooting star, or it may look like a shooting star. So that when you're lying on your back on some mesa in Arizona near Arcosanti and watching shooting stars cross the sky, it may actually be flaming feces from some <laughs> rando astronaut. Um, yeah. It's beautiful. Yes, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> That's what we're about. Sucking, sucking all the romance out of life. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with lots more Atlas Obscura. If you want to, if maybe you've got something, maybe you've got something you think they don't know about, give us a call, 860-275-7266. Or tweet us, WNPR Colin. And I hope it sees you well Through train rides and hotels This is your traveling song And on the window of the train I thought every Saturday was self-care Saturday. That's like what I do. I like it's, For me, it involves lying on the floor moaning, but I, I'm, that's what I'm doing. It's self-care Saturday. Why would you pick one Saturday for that designation? We're talking about Atlas Obscura right now. Uh, we're talking to the staff and founders and editors, uh, all of the above, uh, Dylan Thuris, Rehan Harmansi, and Sarah Lasko. Also with us is David Plotz. I'm so excited to be talking to David Plotz right before, I'm pretty sure, he records the Political Gab Fest of Slate. Uh, I'm that big a political gab fest groupie that I'm like excited that I'm like the last voice he'll hear before he does that. Um, so, um, Dylan Thuris, I, I want to go back to you and just talk about the origin story uh, here of Atlas Obscura. Um, you are a part of it. Um, I don't have the uh, part of the site in front of me, but am I, I correct that you, uh, in your capacity prior to this, that you actually encountered uh, chimpanzees who had never seen a person? Are you that person? I'm not that person. That's, you, that's are the other confused, person. you are confusing me with Joshua Foer, who is, in fact, couldn't, was, was very disappointed that he could not be here today. He's, he lived in New Haven for years and, and years, and he can't be here because he is actually going back to the Congo, like, today. Right. Um, Chimpa- for a different story. Chimpanzee reunion. Uh, yes. And those are, you know, those can be very bad, too. I mean, you can, you know, you have to be careful how much you drink. So tell us how Atlas Obscura got founded. So Josh and I met 
uh, on the internet. He was he had a great blog called the Athanasius Kircher Society, which was like even more of a deep, weird, obscure cut than than Atlas is. And, and it was all it was founded around this Jesuit priest who was sometimes who's called the last man to know everything. And he was involved in volcanology and Egyptology, all of this uh, in in the uh, 15 and 1600s. And um, and so we put on this event together, which was kind of a, a real world wonder cabinet. We we actually had uh, we had this guy Joe Kittinger there, Colonel Joe Kittinger, who has now passed away, but was for about fifty years held the record for world's longest freefall. He he went up it, to, at, to the edge of space before they knew what would happen. They were like, I don't know, you might <laughs> float away. Um, and and so uh, he was there, the real life uh, Rain Man. Kim Peek was there and performed some memory feats. We did a performance of a. Uh, Romeo and Juliet uh, scene using a language called Sol Re Sol, which is only uses the Do Re Mi Fa Sol as it as its basis and can be translated into music and color. It was it was set to be the most universal language in the world. Of course, when every word sounds like Do Fa Sol Fa Re Sol, it really doesn't uh, translate. It doesn't work that well. Um, so we did this. We had a great time. I was headed off to live in Budapest for a year. And as part of this, Josh gave me an out-of-print book called Weird Europe. And it was a good – it was a really good book. We, the tone was sort of a little wacky, but the places were so amazing. And we started talking and we were like, why doesn't this exist on the internet? Why isn't there, why isn't there a place I can go and just find things like this anywhere in the world? Because uh, we both love to do this kind of travel. I, I did some of this travel as a teenager in the Midwest. I went to a place called House on the Rock when I was about 12 and it like sort of inverted my universe. It is a bizarre and amazing place. I recommend that everyone go there if they ever have the chance. Ever, near Wisconsin, you should go to House on the Rock. Anyway, so so that's how it started. I mean, I went and lived in uh, Eastern Europe and traveled around there for a year and was sort of doing some discovery. And we started to kind of write up the first places. And we scraped together a little bit of money to, to build a, a kind of proto version of the website. And it sort of rolled forward from there. And I think as soon as we put it out in the world, we realized that we were not alone, that there were tons of people who loved to travel this way, who loved to find things like this, to know about unusual and sort of hidden wonders. And so it was a, you know, I feel like we kind of, you know, accidentally through our own passion just stumbled into something that was was waiting uh, to be to be grown, you know, so... Yeah, it's been a really sort of organic process. And, you know, David, I do feel as though, I mean, Dylan refused to repudiate Rick Steves, uh, but I think he's just being nice. Uh, but I do feel that when people travel, there's this kind of, you know, Thomas Kuhn paradigm chasing thing that happens, which is everybody goes to the same place. You know, everybody um, uh, everybody goes to Paris and converges on one of five destinations, and everybody goes to uh, Portugal and they get their Rick Steves book, and they don't go to the 185-year-old Portuguese hospital hospital for dolls that Dylan uh, wrote about earlier this summer. So, and and I, I, it's frustrating, right? Because you looking at Atlas Obscura, I'm looking at places that I've been to where I kind of did that paradigm chasing, where I thought, well, I really have to see this or that particular landmark, check it off the list kind of thing, as opposed to turning my own curiosity loose. So I assume one of the things you guys are trying to do, David, is sort of get people to think about their own whereabouts differently. Yeah. Dylan likes to use this quote, and you were talking about this a little bit earlier, 
Colin, about how we see the world. And Dylan likes to talk about that the difference between you on vacation and you and your own experience is not really the landscape around you, because lots of us live in interesting places. The city where I live, Washington, D.C., is filled with wonderful, marvelous places. But because I'm there every day, I kind of they kind of don't don't even register. But when you go on vacation, you're suddenly seeing the world differently. It's not the world has changed. You've changed. And our goal at Atlas Obscura is to kind of put you on vacation all the time, to make you see the world through your vacation eyes, to recognize that wherever you are, something is there to to surprise you and to amaze you and delight you. And that feeling, uh, you know, we want you to have that feeling because we want you to visit our website and go to our events and, and participate in our community and contribute to the website, and that helps us. But really, we want to do it because it makes you feel better. The reason I ended up coming to work with Dylan and Josh at Atlas Obscura was that I had this own experience in my life, which is that I, I had left Slate. I'd quit as the editor of Slate and wanted to do something new. And I went out for a bike ride with my daughter in Washington, and we went to a part of town I'd never been in, and we were biking around. And I noticed that all of the places we were biking through were named Fort. There was Fort Davis, Fort Mahan, Fort Wallace, Fort DuPont. And I, and I came back home, and I was like, why is everything called a fort? And then I looked at a map of Washington and realized, oh, this is the ring of forts that protected Washington during the Civil War. And so a few weeks later, I took my family out, and we went for a walk, and in a very busy part of town and you walk into the woods there's a there's a forest there you walk about 150 yards into the woods on a small path and then another tiny little path off to the left and all of a sudden even your deep forest there's a moat and then there are these earthen walls that rise 15 feet above you and if you climb up on the walls you realize oh it's a ring of walls now completely overgrown by trees but that this was a fort that we were in here in the middle of the city in the middle of my own hometown, just a, a less than a mile from where I grew up, I had discovered a Civil War fort. It turns out it's called Fort DeRussy. It was a fort that took part in the, the Battle for Washington in July of 1864. It fended off a Confederate attack. It had noble, real noble service to the country, and it was just overgrown in the woods. Now, it's, it's not we didn't discover it. It's on the National Park Service website. You can find it. But that sense that my family and I had of, wow, we have come across a wonder in the world that we didn't know was there, but it's right, it's right there. It's right in the middle of the city and right where we live um, was totally inspiring. It made me think this is a feeling that, that I want to project in the world. This is a feeling that, that uh, Josh and Dylan and, and Rehan and Sarah and, and those of us who work with, we are, it's, we're pretty passionate about it. And we want everybody who comes to the site, who reads the site, who participates in the site to not just to, you know, give us traffic, which we, of course, we want, but to have uh, to be embodied and emboldened in this own idea that we can be explorers in our own life. Um, but uh, an update here uh, at uh, the at WNPR Colin Twitter account. Rachel Smith has tweeted, I volunteer as tribute. Ahem. I mean, as a credential historian who gets slightly excited over Nathan Hale related quests. So I think she's offering to help me locate the body of Nathan Hale. And so uh, maybe I'll scoop Sarah Lasko just for once and find something that she hasn't found. But Sarah, do you have certain grails are there things now that you really want to find uh, or, or is it more the case that people know enough now to tell you when they've found something oh well i have gotten some really interesting 
um, emails about things that people have found. Um, you know, sometimes they're like pyramids that they've come across. And I think it, like often it's um, the same way that, that David is describing, like you come across something that, you know, maybe is documented somewhere in the world. But when you're it's new to you, it feels like you've discovered something totally um like unheard of um and you know also like just really strange things like um a guy emailed me the other day about some stones that he had found that had some sort of like very special um kind of lewd design on it so i think that people are finding strange things in the world all the time um i'm not sure what my personal quest is um you know i have a a few stories that i'm working on that i am excited about but uh I I, I actually, and this is an Atlas Obscura thing from years ago, I spent quite a bit of time traipsing around in the woods of East Haddam, Connecticut, where I it was told there was a giant stone clown head uh, out in the woods, possibly Neolithic, possibly from outer space. That part wasn't really sort of spelled out. It seems like the kind of thing, the uh, kind of fool's errand that I might have been sent on. But then there was like somebody else, a guy named Ben Cowher, who claimed he found it. But So that's my grail. If anybody, but if anybody listening knows where the giant stone clown hood head in the woods of East Adam is, please email me immediately at Colin at WNPR. But Sarah, do you have a particular favorite thing besides uh, suspicious gangs of kangaroos, a, spe- a specific favorite thing that you've written about recently uh, among the found things? Mm. Um, well, this is not exactly a, a found, although it's sort of a found object. But um, a little while ago, I wrote about a very particular hobby that people have, uh, which is personal tunneling. And um, these are, are found objects. <laughs> I like in that, it already. Like, yeah. I mean, they're often discovered when, you know, a couple times it's happened where a truck or some sort of like heavy uh, machine has driven over someone's personal tunnel network and it's collapsed and that's how the tunnels have been found. But, um, you know, across history, there have been a few mostly men who <laughs> have just in their backyards or in their basements decided to start digging and ended up with you know, multi-level tunnel systems for different purposes. Some religious um, people just say it feels very meditative. Um, and, like, again, I think this is the sort of thing that is just there in the world, like Wes Anderson-like, that you don't know. Like, one of these tunnel systems was uh, dug by a guy in D.C. who actually uh, made two in two different spots. One is now gone, but one was just at a house in DuPont, which I'm sure I lived in D.C. for three years, and I'm sure I walked past it a million times, and just the thought that, like, someone was once behind those walls digging all day, you know, every day, is fascinating. Right. What I had was a tunnel where I would urinate on uh, truck tires and then I would run and hide, <laughs> and hide in the tunnels. The, I Really, the more you guys talk, the more I feel like we are living in this is one big Wes Anderson movie that's being d- directed by gigantic aliens from outer space who are just watching this whole thing and just they're filming it. It's going to be released, you know, in 3000. Uh, but this our whole planet is just a big Wes Anderson movie with cutaways of these tunnels and stuff like that. It's a very disturbing feeling. We're talking to the uh, creators of Atlas Obscura. Before we go to break, I want to also talk about the is it um, uh, Rayhan? Is it the 100 wonders? How many wonders is uh, Atlas Obscura trying to catalog? Um, in video form. Well, yeah, um, yes, it's, yeah, I guess these are videos, right? And, and I think Dylan does a bunch yeah, of them. Yeah, so so Dylan Dylan is the mastermind behind um, our One Hundred Wonder video series, um, and uh, yeah, he he went through the archives and pulled out um, Atlas fan favorites and also just um, 
you know, places with kind of amazing backstories. Um, I think some personal favorites too. Totally. Yeah. These are there's there is no like real good rhyme or reason to to the one hundred wonders I'm choosing except for that I I really love them. Yep. <laughs> so Dylan, they stuck with me. Give us give us one or two personal favorites from one hundred wonders. <laughs> um, well, I, I actually had for me what was like a high water mark moment in my life recently. So I did a one hundred wonder about this guy Jeremy Bentham, who's an oh, incredible yeah. philosopher. And among the many other things, one of the, he's the father of utilitarianism. And one of the sort of fun and eccentric things that he did is that he, he put in his will that when he died, he would be turned into essentially a mummified statue of himself, that he would have his head preserved and have a, uh, his bones uh, put into one of the suits he normally uh, wore and would be basically kind of he wanted to be brought to his friends' parties. Like, he wanted to sort of just, like, stay in the scene. Um, and, you know, and, and he came at this from a philosophical point of view. He was utilitarian, so he thought, what's the utility that my dead body can give the world? And this is sort of the answer he came to. He also advocated – it was never published, but he advocated that everyone do this. He was like – this was kind of also a weird public health thing. He was like, oh, you know, we're having problems with bodies rotting and all that. If we all just did this – we could set up big, you know, it, churches could just be these rows and rows and rows of, of uh, what he called auto icons or these sort of mummified statues. So he did this and he ended up at the University College London and he's been there for, you know, 150 plus years. Uh, and he's kind of in just a hallway there. Like students walk by him all the time. And a little while ago, they had to take away his mummified head, which was actually kind of horrif- horrifying looking. It was slightly hideous. <laughs> the The mummification did not go that well. So they made a, a different wax head that they put on his shoulders. And his, for a while, his mummified head sat between his legs when his wax head was up on top. And it was this great, <laughs> weird thing, which is wonderful. But uh, there's, were, there were some pranks. Uh, some kids um, took the head, the real head, and ransomed it back to the college. Uh, and they, what they wanted to do is the college uh, to pay some money to a charity. I think they actually were also like demonstrating utility. They were like, Sed's not doing anything, but if we ransom it for money for charity, like it's also, so I actually kind of think like that was, a, a, you know, philosophically a reasonable move on their part. Anyway, the, the school didn't love it. So they took the head and they put it in this like amazing Victorian box. It's in a bell jar in this wooden box. It takes four keys to open and two people to take it out. Uh, but I just personally love Bentham. So I did this piece on it, uh, this video piece. And the next day, it just so happened. This was total coincidence. It happened to be the yearly check on Jeremy Bentham's head day, mm-hmm. like the next day. And so we got this tweet, which was a photo of the conservator, Bentham's personal conservator, watching the video with Bentham's actual mummified head in the background. And I could not, this is the greatest celebrity moment I will ever have in my life. Like there is not a celebrity on earth who will make me as happy as Jeremy Bentham's mummified head did. It was, it was just, it was genuinely like a high watermark moment. So that's, this is, you know, this is, what that's, I'm doing. that's actually the Kardashians calling you right now. I think in the background, so they are <laughs> they are mummifying all their heads, and they think they're much more uh, interesting than Jeremy Bentham. I do want to say one thing about that, which is that it really, and I think you make this point in the in the piece too, is that this, so this is like a secular humanist thing, you know, or secular humanist doing something that I mean, like 
I, there's I, I learned from Atlas Obscura about a severed arm from some saint that's in Mystic, but like there's that stuff is all over the place. Religious relics and body parts and mummified things they're like everywhere. But secular humanists, it's about time they either put up or shut up. So. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for that head. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to further nauseate you by having Rehan talk about the Cushing Brain Collection at, the, at Yale when we come back. the lost armchair of Ichimachura and the sacred reading lamp of the Fufus. And can this be the forbidden TV remote of the Fourth Covenant? My quest ends right here in my living room. Today's show is produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Sarah Flaherty and Dan Schultz. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by David Attenborough. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff trekking through aisle five of Urban Outfitters, visit our website, wnpr.org slash calling. On tomorrow's show, the bomb that was a clock. And now, back to Colin. Right. So we're talking today about Atlas Obscura. We're talking to Atlas Obscura. It is this amazing site. I, I would call it a travel site, but it's really not exactly that. It is that and a lot of other things, a kind of a way of discovering the world around you. But in terms of travel, I would say that I have been in or through Paris for the last five years. And so I looked at their, I just clicked their Paris tab, and there's the Paris bird market and the world's oldest basketball court and the Maison de Serge Gainsbourg, and uh, there's the house of Nicolas Flamel, who was an alchemist. And I mean, just there were like 19 places, and I'd never been to any of them. So don't go anywhere without at least looking at uh, Atlas Obscura. And we're going to also tell you a little bit about how you might get involved with Atlas Obscura as we go along here. But before we do that, uh, uh, Raymond Harmanzi, uh, I did promise them the Yale, uh, the Cushing Brain Museum or Brain Collection, I guess, uh, at Yale. Are you the right person to tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I'm so glad that this was promised. Um, yeah, so this, uh, what I think is so cool about this is it's not just a brain collection, but it's actually a brain and glass plate photography collection. Um and uh, the basic story um, is that there was this amazing um, early, early neuroscientist, um, or, and, um, you know, he was actually, like, he won a Pulitzer Prize for writing. I mean, Dr. Harvey Cushing was a, was a Renaissance man. Um, but he participated in early brain surgeries, and he actually was very interested in tumors. So he, as a part of his work, started amassing a collection of brains, diseased brains, and also... Um, uh, you know, medical photography, which, um, which you know, at that time was how things were documented. Um, there weren't a lot of other tools. Um, and when he died in 1939, this collection of brains and photography and kind of other ephemera were donated to Yale, and they were preserved for a while. But in the 60s, um, this collection fell into disrepair as newer tools were emerging um, to document, um, you know, medical stuff. And so this collection was moved into a dorm at Yale. And so students in the med school knew that there was this basement room full of brains and it became a kind of underground thing. Um, but it wasn't until the 90s that the historic importance of this collection was recognized. Um, and, you know, people went into the basement, took out the brains. Um, Yale built this kind of 
little room inside the library, um, the medical library, um, that is specially um, designed to house the the brains. There's like it's kind of climate controlled. Um, and I actually went there a few years ago, way before uh, Atlas was a was a glint in my eye, and was just amazed by it. Um, and I was also really struck by the photography there. It's it's gorgeous and haunting and weird. Um, and the the archivists are still actually sorting through the photography. They haven't even looked at all of it yet. Um, and Dylan Thuris, uh, just in case you're wondering whether there's a reason for you to go on living another day, Rob has just tweeted to us, the segment re the head was the best thing I've ever heard on radio. Uh, so <laughs> that's validation, uh, if ever there could be. So David Plotz, this, the whole idea, okay, everybody's listening now and they're hearing about Atlas Obscura and maybe they didn't know about it. And, and you, you want them to do, maybe, some of them to do a little bit more than read, right? What do you want people to do? Well, we want people to start by reading. But beyond that, we want people to start getting our emails, which you can get. We have we have uh, frequent w- emails filled with wonders, which you can get by going to atlasobscura.com slash email. And once you've started hearing more about us and reading about us, we want you to contribute places. You know some wondrous place near you. It's probably might be in the Atlas. It might need better photographs. You might know a place which isn't even in the Atlas yet, which you can write up and contribute. And then we want you to start going to events. All the time we're putting on amazing, surprising events in the world, expeditions. Uh, uh, We did something at the Cushing Brain Collection, actually, on on Obscura Day every year. We have a day we declare to be Obscura Day, and all around the world we have hundreds of events in 30 countries this year and 39 states all on that one day. But even just in the course of, of uh, a regular week, we'll, we do a lot of events uh, in the New York area. Um, not, I'm not sure we do, we're doing any in, in central Connecticut right now, but we will. Believe me, as we expand, we will. Uh, but we want you to become somebody who gets out and explores the world and shares your knowledge, having explored it, and your photographs and your, your, the expertise you acquire with our readers by entering things in the Atlas and, and becoming a participant in our community. Well, once Rachel Smith and I locate Nathan Hill's body, we might let you, you know, involve yourselves in that for an uh, obscure day. So, um, Dylan Thuris, this feels like a site. This feels like a project that's growing. I mean, David is suggesting ways that it's growing. And, and so as one of the co-founders, what do you what do you hope for? What do you hope for in the year or two uh, ahead from now? You know, there's a few different things that make me really excited. Um, I mean, one one question we had when we started this was, are we going to run out of wonders? Are we going to basically write up a thousand really neat things in the world? And we'll sort of be like, well, well, there it is. You know, like, I'm glad we did that. Uh, and, and what this has proven over and over again is like, that is an impossibility. And, you know, even though we're constantly adding to this collection of places, we still get stuff that people we get tips sent in that are just mind-boggling. We get stuff that you cannot believe you didn't know existed. We had one. This is a, a couple of years ago now, and it's been sort of I think more brought into the mainstream. But uh, the root bridges in in India, these living bridges that are grown out of two living trees, just that was sent in as a tip. And the only thing I could find on the internet at that point was a, like a little write-up from this Indian resort. And he's the guy who sent it to us. And we were like, this is, we cannot believe this is not more well-known. So so that's one thing that it makes me excited. It's just, is growing this thing, making it easier to find 
amazing places around you. I'm also really excited because we're doing more uh, original editorial. So so it gives us a chance to do some deeper investigations into things that interest us. Like if we find Nathan Hale's body, like that's not a good that will it should be a place. We'll be like, "Oh, this is where we found Nathan Hale's body." But what it should be as well is a really great long read about Nathan Hill and and we and the multiverse piece uh, we just did was an example of this kind of thing and and it just it makes me so happy that we can we can actually create stuff like this and and really go deep on some of these subjects um so that is great and then as david just mentioned we are going to uh have obscure society chapters in cities all around the world if wherever you are we are going to bring one to you soon and and that is great because it's kind of the philosophical completion of, of our mission we don't just want you to read about these places ultimately we want to get you out in the world whether you're exploring on your own or going with us on an event that's when I think we really feel like we have kind of closed the loop and and said, you know, this your world is wonderful. It is amazing. Go out and start looking for for wonders to explore. Go and be an explorer. You are an explorer. We're going to have to stop now. I would just quickly say, Dylan, that uh, very uh, well, first of all, when Nathan Hale was executed, nobody had ever heard of him. I mean, George Washington never heard the name Nathan Hale. He died in total obscurity. And then about 50 years later, his story was revived partly by Yale people because Yale didn't have any big Revolutionary War heroes and also by Americans because the British had John Andre, who was this master spy, and there were no good spy stories. And so they kind of located this poor nobody who'd been hanged and, and and they made him more famous uh, than he ever could have dreamed of being, I think. So that'll be part of your long read. This has been terrific. Thanks especially to Lydia Brown, who did an amazing thing today, hooking everything up. Greg, do you know what language they're speaking here? You know what? No, I have no idea. It's like a language where they have a word for everything.